Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Welcome to Club Book with Lawrence Wright. My name is Ben Percy and I'll be your moderator for tonight's event. Before I introduce Larry, let me tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing him to you. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of St. Paul Public Library. Dakota County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Without further ado, Lawrence Wright is an acclaimed journalist, screenwriter, and novelist. His impressive 10 nonfiction titles to date include The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda, and The Road to 9-11, winner of the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction. Wright also executive produced a 10-episode miniseries adapted from this 2006 expose starring Alec Baldwin and Jeff Daniels for Hulu in 2018. His explosive follow-up, Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, likewise received the screen treatment. Wright co-produced a 2015 film adaptation that won three Emmys, including for Best Documentary, along with the prestigious Peabody Award. Wright's recent fiction includes the eerily prescient novel we'll be talking about tonight, the end of October, the 2020 medical thriller about a virus that originates in Asia before ravaging the globe. According to the New York Times Book Review, Wright applies the magisterial force of his reporting skills, spinning a novel of pestilence, war, and social collapse that, given the current pandemic, cuts exceedingly close to the bone. Ain't that the truth? If you've already read it, you know that the novel is brilliantly researched and compulsively readable. A precisely designed engine of suspense with a big beating heart at its center. And if you haven't already read it, what are you waiting for? 
I will also say that the end of October has one of the very best last lines I've read in recent memory and and don't you dare skip to the end. You got to earn it or else. So after a short presentation by Larry, we will have time for audience Q&A. So drop your question in the comments thread on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. And if you'd prefer to ask a query a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. So Larry is going to talk for a bit. He's going to read for a bit and then we will get into conversation and I'm gonna hammer him with some questions. All right, I'm, I'm duly warned, Ben. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I guess I would start by confessing how this, uh, this novel began uh, uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, Ridley Scott, the filmmaker, asked me, uh, he had read this Cormac McCarthy novel, The Road, which is this post-apocalyptic story of a father and son walking through the ruins of civilization. And uh, so Ridley's question to me was, what happened? Because Cormac didn't bother to explain. And uh, it was an interesting challenge and not the kind of, in the territory that I don't normally travel in, but how would civilization end? And I thought, of course, you know, nuclear warfare but it's so hard to find a hero in, in that environment. And I cast my mind back to the days when I was a young reporter living in Atlanta, where the Centers for Disease Control are. And I did several stories uh, that took me to the CDC. And I was so impressed by the caliber of the people I met there. Uh, they struck me as ingenious, and humble and in some way noble. And, and also I, I, they regarded the institution they worked for as a kind of spiritual place. It's such a heartbreaking thing that it suffered such a calamity and it cost so many lives in, in this recent pandemic. But anyway, heroes galore. Uh, and uh, I decided that I would set my novel or at the time, the screenplay in, you know, in the Centers for Disease Control with one figure uh, who was faced with a pandemic uh, such as we haven't had since 1918. And um, so I um, really didn't make the, the movie, obviously. Uh, and it wasn't his fault. I had not solved all the problems with the plot. Um, and, but I was never really finished with it. And I, you know, I put it away for years, uh, but I kept thinking about it. And my wife and I were, we were on a trek in England, you know, they're, they're famous for their walking tours and stuff like that. And we were, we were walking from Dover, from uh, um, Winchester to Dover, it's, uh, it goes through Canterbury. Um, and um, it's called a pilgrim's path. It's where Chaucer's pilgrims were, you know, going. And uh, a, it was a wonderful trip. And along the way, there were all these essentially abandoned churches. 
uh, if you've been to England in the last several decades, you know that that's, you know, there's a, actually a society that keeps the old churches up and they're beautiful. And uh, the churchyards, uh, you know, we'd often have picnic lunch in the cemetery around the church. And it was very picturesque, but I noticed that on the tombstones, there was one year that stood out, 1918. And of course, many of them were casualties of the war. You know, Britain suffered terribly in World War I. But 50 to 100 million people died in that pandemic. Uh, and what was so remarkable about it is that it was essentially buried in historical memory. It was so overshadowed by the war, although the flu in 1918 killed more soldiers than the war did. So it struck me, you know, there's that layer of in geology called the iridium layer, which is the marks the, the moment that the comet hit the planet Earth and extinguished the dinosaurs. In a way, this line goes through the cemeteries of the world. And I thought I wanted to go back and revisit that, you know, a screenplay that never went anywhere. And and imagine a, a, a terrible flu like 1918 revisiting us in our time. Would we be any better prepared than our ancestors were in 1918? And, you know, I went out and interviewed a lot of people and uh, the answer was pretty discouraging. For a novel virus that we don't, we don't recognize, that we have no treatment for, that we have no vaccine for, we would be no better off than our ancestors. That was really striking to me. Uh, you know, the, the tools that we had available to us were social distancing, masks, and hand washing. That's what through a century ago. Uh, you know, the difference now is that our masks are much better. But essentially, the world would could suffer the same catastrophe. And with modern travel, it could spread around the globe instantly. So it was, it was chilling uh, to realize what we could be in for. And then the other question I had for many of these experts was, do you think it'll happen? And they all thought it would happen. They all thought we're due for something like this and their whole careers had been structured around something like this. And it was, it was chilling. And uh, so then it became not just a tale, it became a cautionary tale. And a warning, in a way. I, it, there was a bit of a mission behind it uh, as I started to conceive of it as, as a novel. One of the things I didn't do adequately in the screenplay was do my research. And I'm a great believer in, in research for whatever I write, if it's a play or a movie or you know, nonfiction New Yorker story. To me, research is the key to to suspending the reader's disbelief. If the reader feels like, holy crap, this feels real, then you, you have a hold on them that you don't have unless, if, you, if you've made it up out of whole cloth. And so I knew it could happen. And the next question was, well, if it did happen, what would we experience? And it was honestly ironic in a sad way that we heard so much 
uh, when the pandemic hit, the real one. Nobody expected this. Everybody in public health expected it. And, and, and moreover, they told me exactly what would happen. And so I got a lot of credit I didn't deserve for being a prophet, for being prescient. All I did was talk to people and read the you know, tabletop exercises and all that the, that the government, our government actually prepared and transfer that into fiction. And I was really lucky uh, to find people who would make time for this odd venture. You know, I, I went, uh, you know, I, for instance, I went to uh, the uh, NIH in Bethesda and uh, the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, which is Dr. Fauci's outfit. And I, uh, had, uh, I met this guy named Barney Graham. Barney Graham was the head of their vaccinology department. He's six foot five, he's a farm boy from Kansas. And he helped me invent my virus. And I mean, you know, I had, <laughs> as it turned out, the world's greatest vaccinologist. He's the guy who invented the vaccine that Moderna and Pfizer are using. It turned out, I mean, I may, but he, he, he became a great source when I later turned to write about this in nonfiction, but Barney Graham invented my virus. And then when I got stuck in the plot, he helped me cure it. Uh, and I, I cherish that because I feel I got as close to creating a real situation as anybody could. And, uh, and it, it required experts to, to help me have that feeling and be able to cast that spell. Uh, it's it's been um, fun to, you know, like researching viruses. I I'm not a scientist and I'm certainly not a doctor. But and I didn't know very much about viruses. But I, as I interviewed these experts, I came to really appreciate what we face in the world. I mean, there's a wonderful scientist at the University of British Columbia named Curtis Suttle. And you may know that, you know, it used to be thought that seawater was sterile. And he would take a bucket, a liter of seawater and examine how many viruses are in a liter. A hundred million viruses in a liter of seawater, 90% of which are totally unknown. And then another time, he and a group of researchers put uh, buckets. I mean, it seems really primitive science, but they, they put buckets on top of uh, these mountains in the Spain Sierra Nevada to see if viruses could travel in the in the troposphere, just around jet level level, you know. And they were getting. They determined that 800 million viruses fall every day on every square meter of the Earth. And we don't even know it. And moreover, it's not outside us, it's inside us. You know, some of these viruses wed themselves to our genome. About 8% of our genome is composed of ancient viruses that are part of what, you know, construct our memory and our immune system. I became, I have to say, enchanted uh, with the world of viruses and, and with the people who studied them. Um, I guess now I should read you a little bit about this. Uh, I, just to set the scene, my hero, <laughs> Henry Parsons. Henry is 
there actually, he's, there was a Henry Parsons in history. Uh, he's little known, but uh, as I began to do all this research, there was this country doctor in England uh, during this horrible influenza outbreak in the 1890s. And uh, he was made an assistant epidemiologist in the city of London. And it was Henry Parsons who discovered or proved that influenza actually spreads by contagion and not by environmental miasmas, environmental gases. He was the first to actually demonstrate that. And I thought he's been totally lost to science. So whatever I can do to reel him back into public consciousness, uh, I've done in this, in this novel. Um, let me see if I actually have this marked correctly. Yes, all right. So there's an outbreak in a detention camp in Indonesia. Uh, a, uh, it's thought to be AIDS because uh, it, there was, uh, it was a group of homosexuals that had been set aside in, the, in that society. And a group of doctors without borders came down to treat them and they all died. Uh, and Henry went to find out what was actually going on there. And he had to do an autopsy, uh, but he didn't have the proper tools. So he actually had to do an autopsy with you know, a pen knife, very primitive uh, tools. And uh, there was a young woman doctor named Dr. Champy who uh, he had to autopsy. Henry had one last task. He sent Dr. Champy's email to Luke Barre through on his satellite phone. Then he walked out of the tent and slugged through the muddy camp. It was dark. The monsoon was at full force. From narrow openings of their tents, the detainees watched him pass with dread in their eyes. He was a specter, the ghost of their own futures. When he came through the, the gate, it opened and closed behind him. He noticed his roller bag sitting on the porch of the officer's house. Bang Bang and his rickshaw were nowhere to be seen. He was nearly certain that the disease in Congoli was not bacterial. This was something new. It could be a coronavirus like SARS or MERS or a paramyxovirus like Nipah. But Henry could not stop thinking about the W-shaped mortality curve, which was famously characteristic of the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. These thoughts were going through his mind as he stood in the downpour and stripped off his clothes, watching his hair and body in the rain in full view of the detainees and the commanding officer. He was as naked as the young doctor whose body he had broken into with such violence. All his professional life, Henry had imagined that he would rendezvous with a disease that was more clever than he, more relentless, more pitiless. There was a game to it, a match. Every disease had its vulnerabilities. And Henry had made a career out of being the best at understanding the strategy of an alien infection, figuring out his own next move, imagining the brilliant counter. Eventually, he would win if he had time. Some diseases didn't give you time, and then you relied on luck. He had been lucky until now. In this case, however, he had the feeling that luck and time were not on his side. Well, thanks, Ben. I'm open for pummeling. Very nice. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Henry, because I know that you continue to get peppered with questions about, you know, the fortunate or unfortunate timing of this novel. Um, the way it so closely anticipated the biological, the geopolitical, 
you know, gauntlet that we're traveling through right now during this pandemic. Yeah. And, and I know like everybody is fascinated by the research and I definitely want to, you know, continue to, to talk about that. But of course, this is a novel and not a work of nonfiction. And no matter how thrilling the plot, no matter how meticulous the research, none of it matters if there isn't a believable, compelling cast for us to follow. So Henry Parsons, um, Charles Baxter talks about how the most fascinating characters oftentimes suffer from manias. You know, they're obsessed with something. And when somebody's obsessed with something, they're compelling to follow because they're, they serve as a focusing agent for the story, right? And that obsession, it usually reveals something else below the surface, a secret or something subtextual, right? Because so, like Ahab wants the whale dead, mm -hmm. but what does Ahab actually want? You know, he wants... He wants this cruel, indifferent universe there to be justice. He's going to bring justice to it. Uh, Gatsby wants Daisy. But what does Gatsby really want? He wants to be accepted into the society that she belongs to in a society that will never accept him, right? So with your character, Henry, like he's obsessed. Yeah. And he's on a mission. And But underlying that is what I guess you might call his core wound. You know, in, in comics, we often talk about that, the, the core wound of a character. You know, Batman's core wound is that in Crime Alley, his parents were killed. Yeah. And that gave rise to the Batman. And Uncle Ben, right, is Peter Parker's core wound. He's killed by the burglar, gives rise to Spider-Man, and so on and so on. And, and, and what you do is really interesting, I think, in the way that you dole out hints of that core wound before revealing. I wonder, I wonder if you could talk about that because you talk about, for instance, this guy that you talked to uh, this at, at uh, down in down in uh, Atlanta, and and how he's this strapping, you know, six foot five farm boy, as well as being a genius. You you sort of took the opposite approach here. You don't have a Superman at a glance. You know, I, I, it's a really interesting question, Ben, and you know, it goes back to the origin of this as a screenplay where I had to have a kind of a cinematic hero. And that was really stopping me uh, because it was stereotypical in a way. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't want Leonardo DiCaprio to play the role particularly, you know, and uh, uh, nothing against him, but it just, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't where I wanted to go. And when I realized I could cut the strings on the movie, uh, I began to think my character should be wounded and just, just in the way you suggest. And what I thought is that he had been affected by disease. And the disease that affected him uh, was rickety. It's a, it, today a very rare disease. But, um, you know, he, he was, I had a friend who had suffered rickets and he was small and in some ways malformed, uh, but he had great dignity. And um, he was a professor at SMU. And I always thought, uh, you know, wondered what, what would I be like if, if I had suffered what my friend Lonnie Cleaver had gone through? I don't know that I could summon the kind of dignity to live his life that, that he had done. So I, I thought about that with, you know, I gave that disease to Henry. And, you know, it, 
as I found out, uh, a lot of, you know, I came, uh, I was a child during the polio era. And I, when I was talking to people at uh, CDC, it turns out that many of them had been affected closely by polio. And, and the other disease that had affected many of them was HIV AIDS. And so, you know, these, these diseases of our time, you know, are uh, highly motivating in real life to people who have dedicated their careers to trying to cure disease. And it made it makes the character so empathetic. Uh, you you want to root for him. You want to follow him. He's not he's not a Superman. He's not a Leonardo DiCaprio. He's an everyman, and and he's broken. And he's trying to you know that 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 brokenness inspires him. Uh, so he's, a, he's just a fantastic character to follow through all of this. And it has to do with what you were saying before about believability, right? If if your audience is going to buy in to this larger pandemic, they first have to buy in to a hero, right? And someone small and and hurt is is not the usual character that you 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 would certainly would not put on the screen. Although Ridley is apparently signed back on as director, so I don't know who's. Leonardo DiCaprio. I imagine my 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 dreams will come true. Well, well, stories are you know they're oftentimes about to put it very simply, and maybe stupidly. A thing and another thing, right? And again, if you go to comic books, because this is a, a, in a way, a story about heroes and villains. Yeah. Um, and and you know you have Superman and whatever world-threatening event is going on, but you also have Clark Kent and his work with at the Daily Planet with Lois. Right. In this case, the other thing in the story is his family. Yeah. And I loved how you put him in a situation that was impossible. Uh, you know, when I'm talking about moves that need to happen in screenplays or moves that need to happen at certain junctures in comics that, you know, it's this term that sometimes people call the can't must. You know, they, they can't go on, but they must. This, you know, yeah. this impossible situation presents itself. And so here he is in Saudi Arabia and all hell breaks loose. And he makes the decision, even though he knows it's going to cut himself off from those he loves most dearly, makes the decision to shut everything down. I'm curious about how you move forward with your plotting as, uh, you know, as somebody who doesn't write nonfiction exclusively, but that's your primary medium, you know, as you're, as you're building a novel and, and you're inhabiting this character, uh, are you a careful sort of architect so that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're placing your character intentionally in these circumstances, these traps uh, from, from which you'll have to, to you know, unsnare them later? Or, or is it something where you're living the story more so? I mean, I heard you earlier talk about how you had to figure out how to build a vaccine after you built such a great yeah. Right. I had to bail you out. So I'm curious about the difference in writing fiction versus nonfiction. Yes, but also in inhabiting this particular character, you put him in so many positions that just made me tear out my hair and, and worry about the guy. Yeah. Well, you make me think I've got a lot to learn from the world of comics. <laughs> and the lessons that you have to draw from are pretty interesting. 
Saudi Arabia, I that that scene uh, after 9/11, I went to Saudi Arabia and I was working on my 9/11 book, The Looming Tower, and they wouldn't let me in as a reporter. So I got a job mentoring these young reporters uh, at this Saudi newspaper and. One of my first assignments was overseeing the Hajj, where you know two million people come from all over the world and press together very closely for a day on day, and and then they leave and go back to the far corners of the earth, and and every year there's some terrible epidemic, uh, and now I did I d didn't go to Mecca myself. I had to do it by phone, but. Um, all my reporters got sick. And I thought, how dangerous is this? It's not just the Hajj. Any mass gathering is an invitation to the spread of contagion. But I was, it, was, it was very impressive to me that, um, that the whole world could be simultaneously infected. And uh, so, you know, that was, I, I guess the answer to the question that you're posing, which is in a way, where do these ideas come from? So much of them emerge from my own reporting or my own life. Uh, and it just, because I feel more comfortable writing what I know. Uh, it's not that I'm opposed to making things up, I do make things up, you know, but like there's a, a large section in the novel where Henry's on a submarine. Uh, I, the idea came to me because you start thinking about what's the most dangerous place in the world to have a, a pandemic or you know a contagion. Well, submarine would have to be high up there with prison and so on. So I thought uh, and that was how he's going to get home. Uh, and but I don't know anything about submarines, uh, so I, I talked myself into a, a visit to Kings Bay, Georgia, where we have our uh, nuclear sub fleet and boy it's impressive and overwhelming really to to see these things these these missiles that are uh you know four stories tall and they you know they i i never imagined they were so mammoth and anyway i was able to go around and talk to everybody and you know spend time on the sub with these people and it gave me the you know, some bit of the authority to write about it. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, if I make something up, I like to go then out and forage for facts that would support uh, the imaginary plot twist. And you're, you're talking about this moment in Mecca and, you know, I think it, it opens up an interesting discussion about villains, but the first thing I'd like to say about it is that, you know, you, anticipated among other things that there would be uh, you know racial undertones cultural undertones when it came to the world's response yeah to covid or you know in your case the the, the virus that you invented um, in this you know in this instance it's referred to as the muslim virus right right and and i wonder if, about the historical precedent for that about how that sort of prejudice and that that hate and, and fear can come together in a moment it's like that. Almost always true. I don't know how many exceptions there might be, but we don't have to go back very far uh, to for like AIDS, you know, the gay flu. 
the stigma that attached to gay people, uh, you know, just horrible. And, uh, but, you know, go way back in history, you know, with the, with the Black Plague, uh, you know, uh, I've forgotten how many hundred Jews were burned alive in Strasbourg uh, because they were thought to have been the carriers of the plague. Um, it's, you know, blaming, you know, and it goes on right now. Uh, we're blaming China and China's blaming us. Uh, it, you know, there's a, it's not to say that we, we have a duty to figure out where this virus came from and that China's actions have been suspicious. But, uh, you know, the amount of, you know, wholesale blame that is thrown around whenever a mysterious disease breaks out, uh, it's dangerous, it's fraught. And then, you know, you put it in the heart of Mecca. You know, it was just easy to imagine how quickly, you know, this would be leveled as a Muslim flu. And, <clears throat> you know, you have a, a contagion of fear and a, and a contagion of hate. And, and maybe that can be just as dangerous sometimes as the actual contagion. But there's something about a disease, right? It's a, it's invisible. It's in the air we breathe. It doesn't have tentacles or horns or cloven feet or or whatever. We can't. We you know. There's this desire in storytelling to personify a villain. Yeah. And uh, you do the same, right? And it doesn't matter if it's a story about uh, you know a hurricane or a zombie virus or or whatever. There's usually some figure. Who, who comes, you know, that we can concentrate our focus on and, and point a finger at and becomes a kind of villain, right? And, and villains, the best villains anyway, you know, they tend to be, it seems to me anyway, either an opposite or a dark mirror of your hero, mm -hmm. right? If you look at the, the comic book example of it all, you know, you have- uh, I'm really loving the comic book thing. You know, I, really, I gotta say, no, don't stop. I, I, I just feel like it's, 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 it's really interesting to me because it's all laid out so clearly. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's more simplistic and formulaic. And so, you know, it's easy to look at the calculus of it and see how yeah. it made more complicated uh, in a novel or a screenplay. Um, but, you know, the, the comic book version is Superman right, as the hero Zod, who also comes from Krypton, is a dark mirror. Whereas somebody like Lex Luthor is more of an opposite. If you have Batman, right, uh, somebody like the Joker is an opposite of Batman, whereas Bane is more of a dark mirror. But to get into other more literary examples like Sherlock Holmes, mm -hmm. his dark mirror is Moriarty. Right. Has the same intelligence, has the same skill set, but chooses to do ill with it. And so when I look at this book, I see Moriarty in the character of Youngin Stark. Yeah. And I'm curious to hear about his genesis. Well, uh, all right. It, when I set out to create um, a foil, uh, Jürgen is a person, he was Henry's boss and they were engaged in a morally complicated business of ex animal experimentation. I've been curious. I years ago, as a young reporter, I 
I, I cover the animal rights movement in Harvard, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was a fascinating story because there was a, they wanted to ban all animal testing in Cambridge, where Harvard, MIT, the Whitehead Institute, I mean, you know, the, there are millions of animals being tested, uh, you know, and uh, so the city council actually passed a, a resolution and they awarded the authority to shut down these institutions to the dog catcher. <laughs> He's the only person in charge of animal uh, safety, and uh, he certainly didn't want the job. But it awakened to me to the complex, the moral complexity of uh, animal experimentation. We, one day, I hope, can step away from it. But the people that actually have to do it uh, live with the fact that it's it's a stain on their conscience. And um, I think that in the case of, of Jurgen, it, it broke him. And he became, you know, uh, radically oriented towards the salvation of the animal world at, you know, to the extent that he would reduce the population of humanity. I, there's a, at Fort Detrick is where we used to make our bioweapons and who knows what they still do there, but they make, instead of making actual weapons, what they do is they, they take viruses that may, may not be humanly infectious and see what it would take to make them infectious. It's one step away from making a, a, a bioweapon, but that's what Henry and Jurgen did. They were experimenting with viruses to see, you know, what what made them tick, and the way you do that is you you administer them to animals. And I, at Fort Detrick, I was taken up to the uh, BSL four lab, one of the most highly secure uh, places in you know uh, of any lab in the world. And you know they had primates, uh, you know of course a lot of ferrets and other things, but uh, it's one of the, like my guide, uh, I noticed that, uh, you know, he, he, he had no leather shoes, no leather belt. It turns out he was a vegetarian and said, I asked him about it. He said, well, if I have to experiment on animals, I don't have to eat them. And you could see that, that you know, at that moment, I saw that there was, there was a key to try to, it opened up a, a a bit of soul that I hadn't really been able to imagine. If I hadn't been standing there with him looking at these animals inside the lab, it wouldn't have occurred to me the depth of that, uh, that moral split. And so, you know, that Jurgen came out of that. And so he believed he's an idealist, but that's what makes him so dangerous. Yeah, and I always love a, a villain, and I'm sorry if that's a simplistic way of referring to him, but I always love an antagonist who has a code. Yeah, uh, you can you can understand why they do what they do, as right. opposed to being a you know, twirl, black twirling mustache you know, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and and I love how Henry is caught up in that as well because it complicates him further by making his mission a mission of atonement. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, we've talked uh, touched on this a little bit, but. You know, when when I discuss, you know, doling out information, for instance, in the way that you, you know, 
allow us sparingly to to understand Henry's story over time. But this is, you know, this just feels like such a precisely plotted novel. And I'm interested in the way you engineer suspense. You know, my grandpa was an architect, architect. He would always walk me through buildings and explain them to me. He would always bring me over to his drawing table and walk me through blueprints. And so I've always just been fascinated by the way things are put together. Uh, and and in a novel that is, you know, just just a, a roller coaster of a thrill ride, start to finish. How do you play around with the mechanics of it all, the architecture of it all? Well, as I said, you know, I I'd always inspired by the 1918 pandemic. So the one thing I did was, you know, I have an I a calendar on my computer, and I made a new calendar on it, and. Uh, it was the year 2020, but I imposed the events of 1918 on it so that I could see in my real-time calendar, today this would have happened if we were in, and it was, I mean, this is one thing that people don't ask me very much about when it's about it being prescient, but it's the little details about how the, the disease, the real disease progressed that resembled my imaginary disease that was based on a real disease. That was this sort of mind blowing experience for me. The, uh, there's a, one of the trick, tricks of the trade, I guess, is something that a friend of mine, a, a screenwriter years ago called the rubber band theory. And uh, that it's a simple device, but the idea is if you ask a question like, and now what? You know, I mean, something really simple. You don't answer it right away. Right. Uh, you know, you you put it out there, and um, and then you you know go away, and then refresh the question a little bit. But the the this is that question resonates in the reader's mind and it keeps the pages turning. And uh, you know, you want to know now what? And the sort of there's a relationship to how long you can keep it going without them forgetting about it. And, and then, you know, the moment when you explain, you know, what actually happened, there's a release. And uh, it's, I, I think it's a, it's a great storytelling tool, but it's also the secret of you know, even things like jokes, you know, you just, you know, plan a device, you know, you divert and then you come back and you resolve it. Uh, uh, I have a, you know, I work in all these different media, you know, movies and plays and fic nonfiction and fiction and so on, but they're all storytelling. And I, I think the tools that you use in one form are applicable in another. And I, I think any writer would be foolish not to take advantage of, for instance, in the novel, or a screenplay, you know, screenplay or play, you don't have a narrative. You just have, you know, scenes and characters. And those are very powerful tools. And, uh, you know, I, I think also the power of researching nonfiction stories can be applied to fiction very profitably because it, it lays in a layer of reality upon which the plot can stand. 
I love what you had to say about the rubber band theory and you know that that moment of release too is almost always followed by a new rubber band. Yeah, they gotta have them. You, you, gotta have a series of them. That's right. Right. You could almost uh, think of it another way: the turnstile, you know, a turnstile of mysteries. That yeah. As soon as one is satisfied, another presents itself, probably with a bigger question mark behind it than the first. Yeah. But honestly, then, yeah. where ideas come from is the great mystery. You know, so I don't know. You know, fundamentally, you know, you know, when you're sitting down and you're looking into your computer screen and, you know, some notion arises in your head and, you know, it, it can make you uh, superstitious or spiritual or, you know, and I mean, the, the mystery, the magic of, of the imagination is, is confounding. And, you know, if you're in the trade, you know what we're talking about, but it's hard to convey to people what, in, in, I, think, I like to think of the blend, right, of a the right brain and and left brain superimposition, where yeah. you know, there's that magic with the first draft that carries you along, the fairy dust, but then you know you reformulate things according to a design uh, later on. You know, you think more about the geometry, you think more about the the architecture, and how you can deliver this in the most enticing way possible. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention of, of, about this is that, you know, here I am talking about it being this rip-roaring novel, this thrilling novel, and it is, but you also take these moments, and this circles back to Henry, you take these moments to be quiet, right? And that has to do with that larger orchestration where you have, you know, these summits, these peaks, but then there are these valleys between them. And one of the most significant valleys for me came toward the end and I thought it was, it was a really unexpected move from the novel. And, and, and people have said, oh, you know, this reads like Tom Clancy and this reads like Michael Crichton. And, and I, I feel like that there, certainly there are elements you could, you could compare to those, to those writers. But there's also just something very literary and, and heartfelt about some of these these valley moments, especially. You have your, expo your, hel your, your helicopters and your submarines, sure. But you also have moments like the one in the Rockies. Yeah. Where the family, and this is a flashback, the family goes camping together. And they, <clears throat> they go up by horseback and they're left there for five days. And they, they wanna commune with nature. They wanna have this moment where they're unplugged from their screens, where they're listening to birdsong and watching you know, the brook babble and, and connecting as a family. But in, then there's this moment with bears. These bears yeah. come shambling out of the woods around their tent one night when Henry forgets to hike the cooler up into the tree. And we've been warned about this from the very beginning in the same way that the CDC has warned us right. all about, you know, <clears throat> the contagion that's been coming. But They've been warned and the bears are there. And I thought it was just this, this, this really poetic, beautiful moment. They all start to sing together. Yeah. And that to me stood out in the book, that moment where the family is united in song and these bears are, are, are lurking just outside. It stood out for me as brightly as any moment of high, you know, any high intensity action sequence in this. Uh, I really appreciate you saying that, Ben. It was, you know, based on deeply personal experience, you know, uh, I'm taking my family, I took my family to Idaho 
we, you know, we didn't have close encounters with bears, uh, although there was a lot of scat around, you know, but uh, it was uh, intensely intimate feeling of bonding. And that's, you know, so much of the novel is, is, is sort of like the Odyssey, you know, Henry trying to get back home and reunite. Uh, and so just talking about the, this is a man who never expected to marry, never expected to have a family. And, you know, it's so precious to him. And how was I going to represent that? And I, that chapter is totally out of sequence. There's no reason for it, except to demonstrate Henry's love of his family. Yeah, yeah it's a beautiful moment. And <clears throat> I want to make sure that I include the audience here in this discussion. And I've got a few good questions from them. Uh, and one of them is, <clears throat> I'm shooting, I'm quoting here, I'm shooting for a bit of positivity here. Yeah. While this book mirrors real life, the mortality rate of Congolese influenza is astronomically higher than coronavirus. What else are you pleased to say that you've got wrong and that remains pure fiction? Well, you know, let me be dark for a moment. Um, you know, uh, the the pandemic we're experiencing now, we may look back on as just a, you know, an opportunity, a warning shot, because there are a lot of diseases out there that are far more deadly and, uh, and one of them we'll, we'll have to encounter someday. Uh, and, uh, you know, since the turn of the millennium, we've had Zika and West Nile and bird flu and Ebola a couple of times and, you know, and SARS, I mean, Nature is coming at us, and we have to be ready for that. Uh, now, I've got to say I've been very impressed by the way in which so many people, so many Americans, and I speak as one living in Texas, you know, have been willing to sacrifice so much uh, to isolate themselves, whether the government told them to or not, and, you know, do whatever they needed to do to try to stem this contagion. Uh, I underestimated that in, in my novel. Uh, you can see how it's been fraying. And you know, the, you know, if, 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 if we hadn't gotten the vaccine that Barney Graham and, and his partner, Jason McClellan invented, uh, we'd still, we, it, would, it might become more like the novel than it is uh, in real life. But, I think we have made enormous scientific advances in countering this. Uh, I, I don't wanna to get too technical, but structural biology is what created the vaccine. And uh, it's a new field in science. And, uh, and the, that mRNA uh, vector that you use to carry uh, the, the vaccine is, a revolution. Uh, we're on the verge, I think, of having a universal flu vaccine and maybe a universal coronavirus vaccine. Those are, you know, equal to, you know, the, the elimination of polio, you know, something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a triumph. And uh, I don't want to skip past that moment. <clears throat> and one more question 
from the crowd, which is a question I also have. And that is, will Henry Parsons return? Oh gosh, I, I'm so I'm so grateful and confounded by uh, the fact that people are interested in that, and I have thought about it. It's an it, we leave him at an interesting moment, right? And um, and there are lots of literary parallels that you can go back to and think about. Uh, you know, there's sort of the Robinson Crusoe, or or you you know, the Decameron is an interesting. Uh, uh, you know, it's about the plague in, in, in 14th century Italy, but it's a fascinating study of a society uh, in the midst of, um, you know, an assault on civilization. And what's interesting to me about it is that uh, I had this conversation with his medical historian in Bologna. Um, the, it, the Black Plague uh, killed a third of the population of Europe, but it also opened the door to the Renaissance. And it was, you know, she said, you know, it, it allowed for fresh thinking. And I've been very caught up in wondering how this is going to turn out. You know, what mark will this make on society? And I've written, uh, a nonfiction book that's coming out in June about uh, our, pan our real life pandemic experience. But I've thought about dealing with it in fiction too. And I don't see why I wouldn't go back to Henry because I miss him. <laughs> I'm sure you've run into this. You, you get to be intimate and friendly with your characters and, uh, and you do wonder what, what they would do. And I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like having an imaginary friend, I guess. But uh, you know, I I feel like I, I still can talk to Henry when I need him. Make it so, Larry. I want to be. I want to have you here in two years talking about the sequel. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's been fun. And thanks, Ben. Share a pint down the road. I look forward to that. Have a great night, everybody. That wraps up our Dakota County Library event with Lawrence Wright. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Michelle Zahner. Michelle Zahner is a darling of the modern indie music scene, better known by fans under her alias Japanese Breakfast. Her unflinching memoir, Crying in H Mart, debuted April 20th. In it, the Korean-American songwriter chronicles her musical journey in odyssey of self-discovery. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, Sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.